Good morning. Good to see everybody. <clears throat> I'm always fascinated by the fact that women talk in the bathrooms. Well, it was just announced, Ed, that's how I know. If you go in the men's room, it is quiet as tombs. And what would we talk about? But anyway, I hear, also hear that you ladies have pl places to sit in the women's room. Is this true or is this just an urban? It is true. We do too. We do too, but it's not for the same purpose. <laughs> okay, let's move on. I heard a story about Sam Houston when Sam was baptized. Sam actually became a believer and when he was baptized, the pastor that baptized Sam did it in a river. And after he baptized him, pulled him up out of the water and said, Sam, your sins are washed away. And Sam Houston said, God help the fish. <laughs> in a similar way, there was a family driving home from church after a friend of theirs was baptized that day. And the three-year-old asked, Dad, what does it mean to be baptized? The five-year-old son jumped in ahead of the father's answer and said, Oh, baptism, that's when the preacher washes away all your senses. <laughs> and I love that statement because his confusion is often our confusion about something that uh, we think we've pretty much got dialed in and because maybe we were baptized as kids or years and years ago, that that part of our Christian life is kind of done, and that there really isn't any ongoing significance for us in our lives. And if you'll pardon the pun, the water is muddy regarding baptism in our thinking. I mean, we could probably give a pretty good biblical definition. This class is pretty well educated regarding the Bible, and especially something as basic as baptism. And yet, Again, if you don't mind the puns, and these are just a couple of puns, <laughs> what are the ripple effects <laughs> of baptism in our lives? And believe it or not, they, there are. Even if you have been baptized, that was just the splash, as it were, and the ripple effects continue, and they should continue in your life as well. So today and next week, we're going to do a little short two-part series on the ordinances, Today, baptism, next week, the Lord's Supper. And before you settle in for a long summer's nap, thinking baptism is dull and um, boring, um, I'd encourage you to think about what, what are the effects of baptism in my life? And if you come up with a big blank on that, well, then it's good that you came today. And it's good that I came today because we need reminding these, uh, these simple truths. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're actually going to be flipping to quite a few passages, so kind of get ready, get, uh, get ready to move around a little bit in the Bible. I'll be reading some that we won't turn up, turn to just for the sake of time, but there are a few key passages that we do want to look at, and 1 Corinthians 1 is the first one. What is an ordinance? An ordinance is something that Jesus instituted, that Jesus started, that he basically gave to the church to do. 
and there are two. If you define an ordinance that way, if you define, uh, like I know the Catholic Church has what they call sacraments, and there are more than two. But those things include things like marriage that Jesus didn't start for the church. So I'm narrowing it to the, to the view, the New Testament view, of the two rites or rituals or ordinances that Jesus instituted for the body of Christ. And there are two. There's one done at the beginning of your Christian life once, and there's one done throughout your Christian life many, many times. The first one, of course, is baptism, which represents relationship. The second is communion, or the Lord's Supper, which represents fellowship. So baptism, relationship, communion, fellowship. And before we look at 1 Corinthians 1, I just had you flip there so you could have it ready. Right after I read the very familiar words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Listen to these words that Jesus said in Matthew 28 what we often call the Great Commission. The resurrected Christ said this to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus very clearly in his... Great Commission says, make disciples, and this says the two-pronged part to making disciples. First, baptizing them. So Jesus says, go and baptize. So it seems sort of strange now as we look at 1 Corinthians 1, look down at verse 17 at what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Jesus says, baptize. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize. Well, maybe Jesus and Paul ought to get together and decide who's right on this. Or maybe we should understand that Paul understood the Great Commission, the command to baptize, as not to get people wet but to get people to that point, which is why Paul says, my goal is not simply to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to get people saved. And baptism is simply a result of when people would place their faith in Jesus Christ. How essential it is that we come to the place in our lives where we realize that our God is a holy God. He's not just the man up in the sky, the man upstairs, just this good old fella who sort of winks at us when we sin or occasionally decides, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and clobber you for your sin. He is a God who is absolutely holy, pure as light. And because he cannot abide sin in his presence, that doesn't bode well for all of us because we all have sinned and we have fallen short of that glory. And so as a result of the sin separating us from God, that sin has to be dealt with. All the good works that we do in our lives to try to earn God's favor can't get rid of the fact that we've sinned. That is an inescapable part of our past. We've all sinned. So the sin has to be removed. And that's, of course, exactly what God's son Jesus did when he died on the cross in our place. Took our sin upon him 
died the death that we deserved as our substitute, and then rose again on the third day to show that our sins had been forgiven. And the Bible says that all we have to do is just believe that. Just believe it. And your sins are forgiven. You are saved from hell. It's a wonderful truth, and that is the gospel that Paul is referring to here, to preach the gospel. When we hear the word baptism, we usually think of being dunked in water, and that's what it means. Um, the word baptize literally means, the, word, the Greek word baptizo means to dip or immerse. Just listen to a couple of verses. Um, Luke 11.38 says, The Pharisee noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal and was surprised. So that word there in Luke 11, the word wash, is literally the word baptizo. But our translators have done the obvious. They didn't transla translate it baptize. They translate it wash because that's what it means in that context. So the word doesn't mean in every single instance that you take somebody and you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we think baptism, we often think that's what it means. But that's not all it means. It literally just means to dip or to place into. Uh, in the Old Testament Greek translation of the Hebrew, 2 Kings 5.14 speaks of Naaman. And it says that he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. He dipped himself. That is the Greek word baptizo. So the Old Testament had ritual washings as part of what the Jews were to do. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today and go to the Western Wall Plaza, on the men's side anyway, at least I'm aware of that, when you go down to get your little um, yarmulke or thing that you stick on your head so that you can go to the Western Wall, you'll pass by this fountain that's a washing station, and you'll often see Jews there washing their hands, doing ritual washings before they go to the Western Wall because for them, they want to be what they call ritually pure. And this is not a new thing. The, uh, to be ritually pure or to wash yourself is something that they did. The Old Testament had some commands about it, but the Mishnah, which is the, the Old Testament commentary on the Old Testament, had a bunch of rules about ritual washings. In fact, again, if you go to Jerusalem today, particularly around the southern steps, you'll see many, many Ritual baths all over there where the Jews in the time of Christ would dip themselves before they would walk up the steps that you're standing on to go up into the temple. And so the ritual being to, to immerse yourself or to dunk yourself was not a new thing when John the Baptist showed up and started baptizing. The Jews had been doing it for centuries. And when Jesus introduced or talked about baptism, it wasn't a new thing. Everybody knew what it meant to be baptized. The difference was the meaning associated with it. For John, it was a baptism of what? Water, but what did it mean? What did it represent? Repentance, exactly. For John, it was a baptism of repentance. When Jesus was baptized, it did not represent repentance. He had nothing to repent of, but rather he was simply identifying with sinners. And of course, Jesus gave a brand new meaning to baptism for us. It's not a baptism of repentance, but it's a baptism showing that we have repented or that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. If you look outside the Bible, just a quick mention, if you look outside the Bible at Greek literature that was written 
that wasn't scripture, like just grocery lists and things like that, the word for baptize or baptizo was used in reference to a boat that had sunk. It was uh, used in reference to a fabric that was dunked into dye. And so the meaning of baptize became associated with uh, basically to identify with something. Like when you think about, uh, that's a great illustration of, of uh, dye. When fabric is dunked into a dye, it comes up having the qualities of what it was dunked into. And so it was identified with that color. And baptism came to represent identification. And it was a very much uh, a, an understanding that you and I don't have. So there was a figurative use of baptism as well. The literal use means immersion. The figurative use means identification. And this is so important for us as Christians because most of the time we're clueless about this second meaning. Most of the time we hear the word baptize, we think immerse, but we don't think identify with. But let me read a couple of verses from the Bible that can't mean immerse. They mean identify with. Um, John the Baptist, just listen to these. In Mark 1, verse 8, John says, I baptize you with water. So that's literal. And then he's, and John says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's figurative. You are placed into the Holy Spirit. You can't, how do you be baptized into the Holy Spirit if it's literal? Another example, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, meaning they were all identified with Moses. Romans 6, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How can you be baptized literally into death unless someone like puts you in a stir fry or something? There's no way to be baptized into death unless it's speaking figurative. We're identified with Jesus. When Jesus died, we died. That's what Paul means, that we're identified with his death. And one more, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. So you know the difference between translate and transliterate? Not words we use a lot. Translate, I think we sort of know. The translate a word means to write the meaning of the word. So like if we were to say um, that the original word is baptizo, we translate that to say Jesus washed his hands. So we translate the meaning, wash. But to transliterate means you're just taking the sound and literally transliterate, tr you're literally putting it into the same language, which is why we get our word baptize. Now, that may seem like a so what point, except that when we have the word baptizo in the New Testament, um, it, the translators often don't do us favors by simply transliterating it and saying baptize, because we don't know, are you talking literal or figurative? And I've heard Dr. Toussaint say from this very uh, lectern, he says that the translators sort of chickened out. They, did, they didn't want to commit and say, well, this means, you know, the literal or figurative. So they just transliterate it, baptize, and they sort of let you work it out what it, what it means. And that's a challenge for us. The context has to, has to represent which one. Now, turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. If you've ever been to Israel or on an Israel tour, you may have had the opportunity to be baptized in the Jordan River. 
And I've done tours to Israel for more than 20 years, many, many, many times, and I have baptized people who are, have never placed their faith in Christ or people who have never been baptized before. And I've also done baptisms that were rededications. And I really have backpedaled on that uh, in recent years, though some people still do it, and that's fine. I remember Dr. Toussaint was so stringent on not baptizing anyone who wasn't a believer. The, the, jo- the running joke was, on this trip, Dr. Toussaint baptized, you know, 7.2 people. He's very strict on, on who gets baptized. But the, uh, the thought there is, my, my thought is that, the, that baptism isn't a tourist experience. It is part of your Christian life. It is something that you do once. Who should be baptized? Acts chapter 16, look down at verse 30. Verse 30. Acts 16, verse 30. This is Paul and Silas in Philippi, and they had been arrested, and the, uh, the jailer, of course, was watching over them. The earthquake happened, and the doors flew open, and then the jailer calls for lights and rushes in. Verse 30, and after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household, meaning you and your household believe, and you will be saved. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Very simple story that answers the question, who should be baptized? And the answer is those who have believed in Jesus, those who are believers in Jesus. I wear this ring on my finger to show anyone that cares to look that I'm married. I could take it off. I used to be able to take it off. Let's just say I took it off, and I'm still married. I don't have to have the ring to be married, but I do need to be married to wear the ring. In the same way, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but you do need to be baptized if you are saved. It is a, something that is visible, much like a ring. It is a visible sign of a commitment that you have made at a point in time. That's what baptism is. It says that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And I can still remember as a seven-year-old boy, when I came to Christ, a seven-year-old boy, sitting in a Baptist pew in San Antonio, Texas, and listening to the preacher, and of course what the Baptists do, or did at least when I was there, so well, every single week you had an altar call. I mean, every single week the application of the message was, believe in Jesus, come, you know, come down and be baptized. And I can still remember the stirring in my heart over the period of weeks, maybe months, to where I finally came and told my dad, I think I want to go talk to the preacher. And so he took me to the preacher's office. I can still remember there, as a, I was sitting there as a seven-year-old boy looking at this preacher, and he asked me questions like, Wayne, do you know what sin is? So we talked about that. And then he somehow, I don't remember how we got into it, but he started explaining the Trinity to me as a seven-year-old. I thought, wow, it's probably pretty important to know because he's explaining it to me. And I, I still haven't figured it out, by the way, how the Trinity works. 
But I did understand this much, that what I explained to you earlier, that my sins separated me from a God who was holy, and that Jesus died for my sins, and I placed my faith in Jesus as a seven-year-old, and I've still got the picture of when I was baptized there in San Antonio. In uh, the year 1527, Felix Mons, a Swiss reformer, was drowned in punishment for preaching adult baptism. Um, in fact, he was the first Protestant who was martyred by other Protestants. And this really illustrates that there are different views of baptism, as you probably know, and some people take a very strong view on those. It's like, hey, you, you believe in immersion? Well, we'll just go ahead and hold you under for like five minutes. Some view baptism as a sacrament, as I mentioned earlier. Sacrament comes from the Latin word that means pledge. And it has the idea that salvation is a process. Baptism is kind of a down payment of something that's to come. Consequently, they baptize infants because they see that it begins a process that continues until confirmation, or until their faith in Christ is confirmed, and then they take their first communion after that. The baptism of a child, though, if you think about it, is really more of a testimony of the faith of the parents than it is. It's really kind of a, a, a dedication that the child will grow into a, being a believer. But the Word of God clearly teaches that baptism is for those who have believed, for those who have believed in Jesus Christ, something that an infant, of course, is incapable of doing. You're in Acts 16, turn three chapters over to the right and look at chapter 19. What if you have been <clears throat> baptized as a baby or as an unbeliever and you really didn't know the meaning of what you were doing? Should you be rebaptized? Should you be rebaptized? Short answer is yes, you should. In fact, you should be baptized because technically speaking, you weren't prior to faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 19, look at verse 3. This is when Paul comes to Ephesus. He finds some disciples who had not received the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, and he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it is permissible, in fact, even shown here by model, the modeling, that if you have been baptized previously in your life, but you weren't a believer, weren't aware of what you were doing, then you need to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. What about the method of baptism? Should you be sprinkled? Should you be dunked? Should you be squirted in the face? How should you be baptized? Um, there are several modes that uh, you're probably aware of, maybe not aware of what they're called, but aspersion, we might also know as sprinkling, is one method. There's effusion, which water is just poured on your head. And then, of course, there's immersion, where the whole body goes under. Obviously, we know in Scripture, the examples, everyone, is immersion, where the whole, whole body is, is uh, immersed. But let me say this, the Bible doesn't necessarily attach as to much importance to the mode as to our understanding of what it means. Not the mode is as important as the meaning of it. 
It's sort of like when we take grape juice for communion instead of wine. I mean, we don't break out in a, in a fit over that because we understand the meaning behind it. The, the mode isn't as critical as the meaning. And so when you're baptized, if you were a believer and you were baptized in any other way other than immersion, it was still a public declaration that you have your faith in Jesus Christ. And, but I would say, unless there's a limitation on you, there's no reason to not do it like the Bible said. Okay, another turn. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and let's look at some muddy water in, regarding baptism. Because believe me, there's muddy water out there in the body of Christ. I don't know, don't raise your hand, but you may have gone to a church or believed or been raised in a church that said that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. It's that simple. So you better hustle to the baptismal if you've never been baptized as a believer. Years ago, I had a really good friend who attended one such denomination, and when he talked to me about the fact that, he, that his church was telling him he had to be baptized to be saved, I said, no, you don't. I said, you're, you know, and I showed him some scripture, and we talked about that, and we're going to look at a couple of the passages as well. And he was so confused by it that he had me come over, and he brought his pastor over to his apartment. And we locked horns for about a good 90 minutes. And finally, you know, obviously neither of us convinced the other, but totally confused my friend to where he was like, I don't know what to believe. I'm probably going to hell or something. But years later, my friend uh, contacted me. We had lost touch, and he contacted me and uh, said that he, uh, he had left that church, and finally he even called it a cult eventually because of their legalistic teaching. But I want to share with you a couple of passages that sometimes used to teach that we have to be baptized to be saved. And we want to look at what they say and then also what, they're, what they mean. 1 Peter 3 is a big one. In fact, that pastor I mentioned pulled this one out and began to... Uh, to say, hey, it, it says very simply that it's, it's required. 1 Peter 3, 21, look at that. The context of uh, this, of course, is Peter's been talking about the flood waters of Noah. And in verse 21, he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So let's just stop for a second. It says it right there, doesn't it? Baptism now saves you. But Peter doesn't stop. Now he explains what he means by what he just said. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, not the act of immersion. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying it's not the act of dunking. It's what the act of dunking represents. Being, being immersed represents an appeal to God for a good conscience. It means your faith in Jesus Christ. So the, the baptism is seen as just part, it's just sort of the bow that's put on the, uh, the faith in Jesus Christ is ultimately what it means. Take these verses out of context and you've got the makings for a really good cult. Uh, little Betsy had faithfully attended baptism class and her mother, wanting to be sure that Betsy understood what baptism meant, asked her, uh, Betsy, what does baptism mean? 
And Betsy says, well, it isn't the water that makes you clean. And the mother thinks, yes, she, she understands. Betsy continues, it's the soap. <laughs> ah, back to square one. Peter's point is that, to use his own illustration, just as the flood wiped away the old sinful world in Noah's time, so baptism represents a break from our old sinful life and our entrance into the new life. That's what he means, corresponding to that baptism or the, the, the appeal to God for a good conscience saves you. There's another place in the New Testament that has muddied the water a little bit regarding do we have to be baptized to be saved, and that's Acts chapter 2. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. Interestingly, this is also from the lips of Peter. If he only knew, he might have said a little more about it. Or in these contexts, if we would simply look closer at what they say, we would not be confused about it. Acts chapter 2. Uh, there was a guy named Ole who quit farming and moved to another area. Ole was a Lutheran, moved to an area that was primarily Catholic. And of course, Ole loved his Friday barbecues. And so he would, fr he would every Friday he would barbecue beef. And of course, the smell of it would waft throughout his neighborhood of Catholic neighbors who don't barbecue on Fridays beef. And so they decide, well, we're going to get together and talk to Ole. They go over to Ole's house and say, uh, Ole, you are, there's not a Lutheran for miles. We're all Catholics here. We want to invite you to be a Catholic. Ole says, okay, I'll do it. So the day of the big ceremony came up. The priest, you know, had Ole kneel down. He put his hand on Ole's head, and he touched him, and he said, Ole, you were born a Lutheran. You were raised a Lutheran, and now and he sprinkled some incense over Ole and said, you're a Catholic. Oh, everyone was so happy. Ole was happy. The neighbors were happy. Problem solved. Then comes Friday. <laughs> Ole barbecues his beef again. Well, the neighbors go over and say, we need to educate Ole and what it means to be a good Catholic. And as they approached his backyard, they could hear Ole talking to his steak. Ole said, you were born a beef, you were raised a beef, and now, he sprinkled some salt over the meat, he said, you're a fish. <laughs> Point being, the ceremony changes nothing about who you are. There's nothing magical that happens when you get baptized. The experience of baptism, as exhilarating it is to be dunked in cold water, does nothing to change who you are if there's not a commitment that's already done on the inside. Any more than just saying a few words changes a stake to a fish. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Once again, the Apostle Peter, here in his magnificent Pentecost sermon, shares another passage that is often misunderstood as requiring baptism for salvation. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Just read that much of it. Let each of you be baptized. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Now, you may have a different translation. This is the New American Standard. You might have a different translation, but I've looked at a couple, and pretty much no matter how you translate it, this could lend itself to suggesting that Peter is saying you've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. On the surface, it seems to imply this. But here's, here's one good reason that it's helpful to have some good commentaries uh, at your disposal or to, have, to go to a church where when this is taught, the pastor or the teacher or whatever is going to say, here's what the original language says. Because as English readers, we read this, we don't see the plural and the singular in what's spoken. Like when I say, you come here. You don't know if I mean you, Dan, come here, or if I mean y'all come here, everybody come. I just say, you come here. In English, we don't know. I have to say more so that you know what I mean. The problem is, Peter doesn't say more, and the translators just translate it. If they had translated it, y'all, that would have helped us, at least here in the south. Up north, they translate it, use guys or something else. But we don't see it. And so let me tell you what the original says here, and it will help clear the fog a little bit. Peter said to them, verse 38, repent. That is a command that is plural, meaning y'all repent. And then he says, and each of you, that's singular, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of y'all's sins. So why is that significant? Because Peter, by using that different voice, is putting an assumed parenthesis around the phrase, each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you could, even with your marking implement, put parenthesis around that in your Bible, so the next time you come to it, you'll, have, you'll go, oh yeah, we talked about this that day in Marathon. That Peter is linking repentance with the plural command, repent, for the forgiveness of your sins, is what he's saying. And then in parenthesis, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the plural and the singular shows that Peter is linking salvation with repentance, not with baptism. We don't see that in the English, and I realize that we're at a huge disadvantage that way, but hopefully that helps clear up that verse if it has been foggy for you in the past. And, you know, here in America, we have no qualms about being baptized in public. No problem. We can be baptized in public, and no one's going to come haul us off to jail. But it's not that way in other countries. Some other countries, it's illegal. You have to do it secretively, just among Christians. And there is a, a, a danger of being arrested. In fact, I read about a pastor named Samuel Lobo, who, after he was baptized, was arrested and spent four days in jail and was asked to reconsider his decision. And he said this, he said, no, I want to live so that people can see the change in my life. I want to show people that Jesus Christ has control over me. Baptism, in that way, represents a change of direction. It represents a total commitment. There is a cartoon, I tried to find a way to show it to you, but I'll just describe it to you. It shows this pastor you know, about to baptize this guy named Charles. And he says, Charles, when I baptize you, everything that goes under belongs to God. Puts him under, and the, the final frame shows the pastor holding him under, but Charles is holding his wallet above the water. 
Jesus can have everything except that. And of course, baptism represents what our faith really should mean, that Jesus gets everything. Everything goes under. Our money, our family, our will, our, our ability to, to work. So as far as application, I thought, well, how can we apl- apply this? What are the ripples, as it were, the ripple effects of baptism in our life? And I, I've got three questions for you that only you can answer. And here's the first. Have you believed in Jesus and been baptized? Have you believed in Jesus and been baptized? As I shared with you what we called the gospel earlier, is that something you believe? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins? And then here's the second part of that question, and been baptized as a believer. I'm often amazed at the people who have been Christians all their lives and yet have never been baptized. True, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but you do have to be baptized to be obedient. Jesus commanded it. We are to be baptized because Christ commanded it. I worked with a woman years ago who was baptized as a baby, but never as a believer. I don't know how it came up in the conversation, but I said, well, why don't you be baptized? And she said, well, you know, obviously my parents had a lot to do with me being baptized as a baby. And if I was to get baptized, they would hear about it, and I think I would disappoint my parents. That's a huge challenge, isn't it? Huge challenge emotionally. Do I follow God, or do I follow my parents, if it really was? And she struggled with that for years. In fact, I remember she used to work for me, and when she moved on for whatever the reason was, one of my final challenges to her was, be baptized. And she, just this look of fear on her face came up. I don't know, maybe you're in that same position, but I encourage you to be obedient to God. Uh, just this last year on one of my Israel tours, this lady came up to me and said, I've been a Christian for years. In fact, I was baptized as a baby. I've never been baptized as a believer. Would you baptize me? And I said, well, we're going right by the Jordan River. Why don't we do it? And so we did. And I made an announcement on the bus. I said, uh, yeah, I'll just make up a name. You know, Mar- Margie's going to be baptized today. She's never been baptized as a believer. And if you have never been baptized as a believer, I invite you to come and talk with me. Well, this elderly man came up, and he said, I've, I've never been baptized. And so he was baptized as well that day. He said it never even crossed his mind. And yet... He finally decided to do it. So it's never too late to be obedient to God. So I encourage you to do it if you've never done it. Your salvation is personal, but it is not private. God has designed you to be the first act of your Christian life is to be a public act that says, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's a testimony. So that's question one. Have you believed in Jesus and been baptized? Here's question two. Are you developing yourself spiritually. How in the world does that relate to baptism? Remember the Great Commission. Jesus commanded the disciples, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That is a response of self-development as well. 
you have allowed yourself to be taught all that Jesus has commanded. And then, of course, to obey all that he has commanded. You are developing yourself spiritually. Baptism is the beginning, but the ripple effects of baptism are a continual growth in your Christian life. Obeying all that he has commanded. How can you do that if you don't know what he's commanded? That means we read our Bibles. That means we sit under teaching that teaches us to obey the Bible. And we submit ourselves to the, to the word of God. So that's the second question. Are you developing yourself spiritually? And the final question, are you developing others spiritually? Because remember, the Great Commission is not just all about us to be baptized, to develop ourselves, but to make disciples of others as well. Aren't you glad somebody did that for you? I'm so glad someone did that for me. I'm so glad that pastor preached the gospel in my Baptist church in San Antonio, and the Holy Spirit used his words to open my heart to Christ. And if he had not done it, then, I don't know, obviously someone else would have done it, but he would have missed out on the privilege. And that's often us as well. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. He doesn't need us to fulfill the Great Commission. He can use someone else, sure. But what a privilege to be a part. That doesn't mean you have to sign up to go to the Congo. It doesn't mean that you have to stand up in front of a group of people and teach. Uh, but it mean, does mean that however God has gifted you to minister to the body of Christ, that you do that. You, part of obeying all that he's commanded is developing others spiritually as well. So baptism. Who, had, who would know? Who would have guessed that it would have had so much of an impact, not only in the beginning of our Christian life, but also throughout our Christian life? So next week, we're going to talk about communion. In fact, we're not, not only going to talk about it, but I've spoken with Harry, and we're actually going to observe it here together in class. So we'll have a, a good lesson on it from the scriptures, and then we'll actually apply it. I thought about bringing a, a tub up here today and baptizing, but... <laughs> Probably not a lot of swimsuits packed away in your, your belongings today. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the clarity of the scriptures. We, to use the, the pun, we have muddy water when it comes to baptism. So much confusion abounds until we actually read the, the scripture and let it speak for itself and even get into the nitty-gritty in some cases and understand these muddy water passages that become clear. Uh, baptism seems such an unusual thing for us. It is a, uh, a humbling experience to be all wet in public, and yet it is a command by you that we would make a public statement. And so, Father, we pray for any who are here today that perhaps have not placed their faith in Christ, that they would abandon their pursuit of good works to try to earn heaven, that instead they would abandon that and place all their faith, all their trust in the one who has died for them, that their sins are forgiven simply by faith in Jesus, and then would take the next step of publicly being baptized and then having a life devoted to self-development and also developing other people. This is our privilege. Thank you for the privilege. 
And as we go forth today and think back to the day that perhaps we were baptized, I think back to my time as a seven-year-old boy, never could have imagined the life that you would give me. But I thank you for reaching out into my life and loving me enough to introduce Christ to me. And we all say the same thing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Just want to give you a warning. Next week, <laughs> there's going to be some tables over here on this side. Okay? These will be the narrow lecture tables, and there'll be uncomfortable plastic seats to join them. Okay? So if you want a table, if you want to be able to sit at a table, make your notes, have your coffee, there will be tables over here. The rest of this section will be the comfortable chairs that you're in. Okay? Anybody, anybody want to get upset right now? <laughs> okay, sorry about that for those of you who are comfortable sitting in that section over there. But that's where the tables, this is in conjunction with Grace Gathering. That's the way they would like to do it. And that some of you in here would like to have tables as well. Okay, so have a blessed fourth until next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.